Hello, my name's Seth Townsley. I'm passionate about energy reduction, climate change, and new technology that assists organizations and communities reduce their carbon footprint. I'm also the energy marketing manager at Schneider Electric, the world's most sustainable business. So it's great to work for an organization that practices what it preaches and enables you to indulge yourself in your hobby. Under our current global trend, we need one and a half Earths to sustain our lifestyle. By 2030, we will need two Earths. In the last 170 years, we have added 2.4 trillion tonnes of carbon dioxide to our atmosphere. Half of this amount was added in the last 30 to 35 years. 21.5 million people have been forcibly displaced because of climate change since 2008. The UK, through the carbon budget via the Climate Change Committee, and the EU have recently announced more aggressive climate change targets and after rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, the USA and the Biden administration have committed to half emissions by 2030 and recently hosted 40 global leaders including China at a digital summit on Earth Day the 22nd of April to treat climate change with the seriousness and urgency it demands. Of all the sectors, be it road, rail, sea or air, remains the largest source of pollution and the innovation, evolution of new technology and digitization will assist in the decarbonization of the industry. So in this episode of the Drive to Net Zero, we'll talk about high-power charging of electric vehicles, e-buses and trucks. And this episode's panel includes Sam Clark, Graham Cooper and Andy Eastlake. Sam Clark is the Chief Vehicle Officer at GridServ and is an entrepreneur, investor, EV evangelist, a fellow and a sector chair of the National Institute of Couriers. Prior to joining GridServe, Sam was the pioneer behind Newt, the green logistics specialist he founded in 2009, with Newt winning national and global awards during its decade-long journey of last-mile logistics using only electric vehicles. Graham Cooper leads National Grid's work on the electric vehicles' decarbonisation of transport by leading and coordinating all the work related to the UK-regulated business of National Grid. His work helps government, the energy and automotive industries transition towards zero-emissions vehicles, with over a decade in communications infrastructure and over a decade in low zero carbon electricity, Graham is a well-known and highly respected energy industry expert. Finally, Andy Eastlake was appointed as Zemo's Managing Director in April 2012, after serving both on the board and as Chair of the Members' Council for many years. As MD, Andy has been integrally involved in the design and implementation of the latest accreditation schemes for both buses and HGVs, supporting Department for Transport and OLEV in stimulating the uptake of low-carbon technologies. It's wonderful to have you join me on the podcast today. Firstly, to to Sam and and to Graham, could you tell me uh, a little bit about how you got involved in the world of e-mobility? Because I think it's quite a a fascinating journey from from what I've read. Go on then, Sam. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, all right. So in a a potted history, very, very, very quickly, um, I've been driving EVs for something like 16, 17 years now. Um, I got into the world of EVs in China, looking at them, uh, looking at EV uh, two-wheeled vehicles mainly um, in the early 2000s. Uh, and then spent a decade running my own last mile delivery company with a fully electric fleet in central London, um, where I got into uh, into knowing the guys like Graham and Andy on the call very well with all the work we were doing in central London. Um, and then more recently, I have uh, sold my company and moved to GridServe as a chief vehicle officer to help um, the transition into electric vehicles, both by virtue of our charging infrastructure, um, as well as uh, leasing and uh, supplying electric vehicles um, for the people we hopefully will use that charging infrastructure. Okay, so I'll give you a quick potted history. So I'm the energy guy. So obviously, you know, Sam's coming through the lens of of vehicles. I'm coming from the other end of that spectrum, which is from an energy perspective. But in a very potted history, this change I've seen two or three times before. So my first career, I built mobile phone networks across Europe. 
So that's a technology disruptor pushed by government, pulled by consumer, significant infrastructure, strong regulator. After doing that for 11 years, I realized there's going to be mass consolidation. There's some things to learn here. It wasn't about the network. It was about the offering. Then I went into the renewable sector over a period of about 11 years. Again, um, uh, I built just over half a billion pounds of the wind farms. Um, I did a bit of solar as well, a bit of onshore wind, a bit of offshore wind. But again, if you think about renewables, it's a push by technology disruptor, push by government, pull by consumer, significant infrastructure play, strong regulator. But the biggest frustration for me as a wind farmer was I was always waiting for the grid. It was the thing that held back renewables. So in essence, by being brought into National Grid, Nicholas Shaw, our CEO, said, I need you to be the fox in the hen house. The energy networks need to be the enabler of the zero carbon future, because if they're not the enabler, they're by default the barrier. So that's where I come from. Um, I'm not uh, long in the tooth like Sam. I've been an EV driver and owner since uh, early 2017, um, but I also do sustainably big time. My house is uh, effectively carbon neutral by clean energy. I have ground source heat pumps. I have two EVs, uh, you know, plug-in hybrid and a full battery electric. I even treat all my own wastewater. So my only environmental emissions are um, I expel clean water. So I'm all in both professionally and personally. Just a, just a quick question. Thanks for that, Greg. Just a quick question to Sam there. So you've been driving an EV for 16 years, did you say? Yeah, something like that. What, what, did, you, what did you see 16 years ago that no one else saw? And what, what, what was the catalyst for you moving over to an EV back then? Because the, there weren't the range of EVs on the roads. There's certainly not the infrastructure. What, what, was, what was your stimulation to move to an EV at that point? Well, I think, firstly, you can be too early to this market sometimes. And I think I probably was in reality, um, because what I what I thought was coming um, has come, uh, but but perhaps not quite the, in the timeline that I envisaged when I first started. But I think the trigger for me was was being in China and seeing so many vehicles out there back, back in the day in, the, in these busy Chinese conurbations, huge, huge cities that were already adopting um, uh, scooters as a, mecha, as, a, as a really viable way of getting from A to B. Uh, with basic lead acid batteries, the old, you know, the equivalent of a, of a car battery, um, you know, and, and a removable one at that. So, you know, the, the sort of concept of getting around efficiently, taking the battery out, charging it in, 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 your, in your house or your flat, and then moving around was just, was just commonplace. And I just thought this has got to be the future, both from a um, sustainable point of view, but also from a practical and efficient point of view. Um, and that's really what triggered it for me. Um, and then I came back to the to the UK shores to try and to try and do that, and and that's where the sort of early to market piece, you know, even even to this day, electric motorbikes and scooters haven't particularly caught on. I think they probably will do, but I, I always thought that would be an obvious first choice, uh, and it isn't. But, um, but certainly, you know, the EV fleet generally now across the whole UK, commercial or, or cars, is growing at such a rate that that you know I was right, but just. Um, just a bit it took a bit longer than i was hoping yeah oh, fantastic it certainly is yeah and, and, and finally congratulations to andy for migrating from the low carbon vehicle partnership to zemail how are you finding it so far uh, it's yeah it's gone very well we've had really good sort of pickup of the uh, of the new brand i think we've hit the right zeitgeist um in terms of positioning ourselves now on the net zero trajectory uh, the pace is just accelerating and, and we're hopefully part of that um, I think just picking up one of Sam's points earlier, um, in fact, the two-wheel market is now really moving. 50% of the mopeds sold last year were electric mopeds. So were, were electric, sorry. So 
actually that market, I mean, Sam, Sam was uh, prescient as, as he always is in these things, uh, but actually it is moving now and we're seeing that, you know, it's a natural place for EVs to really penetrate. So uh, that's a great example of the sort of things that are changing almost, un, you know, beneath our noses without us noticing. Um, so, I, you know, I'm really keen to see all of that develop Lovely. thanks 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 for that andy i, I guess we're probably at the start of a very exciting point of the automotive industry aren't we you know I, I read uh, through the guardian you know nearly thirty-two thousand new evs bought in the first quarter in the uk of the year um mass market of consumers are standing up and taking notice of new evs as a genuine alternative uh to internal combustion engines as, as battery ranges increase as the choice of cars increase as the infrastructure improves you know i, I watch car wow and what car online reviews and we're talking about Mercedes EQCs and EQAs and Audi e-trons rather than traditional ICE, ICE vehicles. Um, in terms of um, looking at strategy uh, and the role and the phasing out of petrol and diesel cars, you know, from countries and from regions, I read that we could follow effectively two strategies. The, the Norway model, which is throwing the kitchen sink at the problem with lots of tax reliefs and special privilege for EV drivers, or the California model, which is around zero emission vehicle mandate with automotive manufacturers required to sell increased numbers of EVs each year. Which model you know, should, should we adopt or, uh, to ensure EV targets are met? Uh, I, I'll, I'll chip in there, Seth. I mean, I think, I think we need a combination and a balance between uh, both of them. So, um, I mean, we, we've just seen, of course, you know, lots of um, angst, if I can put it that way, about the reduction in the grants for vehicles, which is clearly going to uh, be a little bit disruptive. But actually, we saw the, also the way that the automotive industry responded by dropping the price of quite a lot of vehicles in order to get that grant. The grant is going to become or is becoming unaffordable. You know, we, we can't be paying a grant to 10, 15, 20 percent of the market. It's just unsustainable. The other thing that I think is really important is that actually right now, uh, I, think, I think I'm right, so over 90% of new vehicles are financed anyway. If you look at lease deals, three-year leases, the salary sacrifice, actually you're quids in as a new vehicle buyer if you're going for an electric anyway. It's, it's very much, uh, certainly when you look at spec, you know, comparative specs of vehicles and things like that, actually the electric vehicles will be saving you money over that three-year lease, three or four-year lease. So we're already at a point where the new market, actually, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer, in, certainly in a number of cases, not everyone, but the used market is a bit more, uh, bit more difficult. And of course, they don't get the benefit of the grant um, for, a, for a vehicle. So you're, you're into this sort of whole residual value and what is that used market? And we've got to be sensible and, and financially sensible about how we transition a new market successful new market needs a really successful used market. Three times as many cars are sold in the used market per year as new. So we need that to really keep going. So things like changing the focus of the charge point grant, where we focus on the sort of rentals and the uh, the leasehold properties, rather than necessarily the, uh, the, the freehold ones. A lot of new vehicles, they're throwing in a free charger with your vehicle when you buy it to try and entice people to buy vehicles. So Actually, government has got to be, and I think, you know, to, to their credit, I think they are being more agile than they have been in the past with some of these things in looking at how quickly things are responding and trying to almost make policy respond at the pace that the, uh, the market and the technology are moving. Now, that's, that's difficult, but uh, it's a really, really interesting space to be playing in right now. I think that just to add to Andy's comment, I think you're absolutely right. You know, 
so Seth, basically both. You need you, it's not one or the other. And, and Andy's absolutely right. What, what's interesting, uh, in addition to me, is actually there's some clever policy stuff that's out there, and people don't realise what it's trying to achieve. So in the UK market, 51% of all new car sales are company purchases, so company cars generally. Because the UK Treasury has given a tax break for you to pick an electric car, you're not taxed in the same way for having an electric car, that benefit in kind is huge. So what you see is huge uptake in new car sales. So as a company, National Grid now says you can't have a new company car unless it's electric. But of course, our fleet, which is nearly a thousand cars, in three years' time will be a second-hand used fleet. And of course, that's not necessarily dining out on any sort of grant because effectively Treasury takes the VAT on the car and that is basically netting off what they would have got from the um, tax take in your salary. So actually, it's doing a couple of things. It's giving an incentive. It's effectively cost neutral to Treasury, but it's also stimulating both the new car market and creating a used car market. So I think a lot of people are very critical of governments that they just make policy up on the, on the fly and don't actually think these things through. If you look at the mechanics, there's actually some really clever stuff that they've done to engineer into that. So, you know, I'm not one for, for uh, you know, unnecessarily applauding what government does. I've got enough criticisms of some of the stuff they do. But actually, when some of this stuff comes together, it can be really quite clever. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add, Seth, to that, all of that, I mean, it's, it's impossible to follow Gra- Graham and uh, Andy anyway, because they're, they're always right. And um, and, and in this case, it is no different. Um, combination is definitely the key. But I think culture plays a huge part in all of this. We, we must learn from other other nations, but we're all culturally different. So there's no way that one will necessarily be replicable in another, in another anyway. So if we can learn from what other people have done ahead of us in this particular context and then, and then learn from it and do a combination, it's definitely the way forward. Um, and the only other thing I was going to say was, and it's escaped me now. Okay, actually, I'm, I need to. I'm going to big you up, Sam. The one thing that you did when you had your last mile delivery business is you normalised that. You normalised that last mile being clean. And I think there's something really important about that normalisation. If it is just normal that we have EVs, then there isn't a barrier. And actually, that's the one thing that you did particularly well at. You, you, you set yourself up for zero emission delivery, but you normalised it. It was special, but it was also everyday work. And I think for me, there's something really quite important about that, just normalisation. It's in the conversation. It's a natural choice when you're looking at a new vehicle. You're normalising it because of the adverts of more and more EVs in adverts. It's just normalisation. Yeah, and, and that normalisation, you just reminded me of my second point, and that was around um, around the, the point that you made around grant funding um, reduction ever so slightly of late. And, and I think and I've seen a couple of times in the last few years where something has gone from free to, to costing something, whether that be the Ecotricity Network or Source London Networks, for example. It was free for ages, and then all of a sudden was 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 a cost, and people went, oh, my God, what's that? You know, but everything needs to be paid for. And I think the reality is while we see this, this trajectory of EVs going up, I think I don't think there's necessarily an issue with some of the subsidies going down because if, if they're feathering off and there's a balance, then there's no big shock at the end of it. Um, as and hopefully as as EVs start to become more price competitive, that will mitigate some of those those grant funding requirements. So I think a little a little and often approach of trying to, to taper this this down because we've all EV drivers, we've all got to pay for the for the contribution towards the roads. You know, there's a there's a huge fuel duty gap that needs to be filled. So 
you know, I think I think it's right to taper these things because ultimately then there isn't a big shock in nine years' time when when the van comes in and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the rug is pulled and thing and, and and the economics doesn't stack up. So I think a tapered approach is important as well as a, a combination of of approaches. Thanks for that. Really, really great answer. Thank you very much for that. Um, given the aggressive targets for EVs. Um, should we be looking to mirror the ban on internal combustion engines with with hybrid vehicles as well? Yes, yes, I, I think so. I think so. I, 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 the um, the hybrid sort of extra five years uh, it, it was a bit of a claw for me. I, I don't know. I I think I think if we we got such ambitious um, targets ourselves, and and recently so too now does does the states with President Biden's recent announcements about about their um, their their targets for reducing emissions. We we all we all just need to work really really hard to to hit those goals. It's just it, it it's it's for the for the good of the planet quite literally. Um, and and putting putting this extra five years on hybrids just doesn't doesn't sit particularly well with me. I think we should just go for it and uh, and be pure EV new registration pure EV. In in the in the vehicle silos that can take it. I'm not saying everything because it's not plausible. Technology's not quite there yet. But but I, yeah, I, I, whether there's influence from the big OEMs to try and get that little bit of extra wriggle room, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I'd love to see that go. I think I think I think it's an interesting one. We actually were a little bit softer on that and 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 thought that the plug-in hybrids with significant zero emission capability might actually extend out a little bit longer. Um, I think, as Sam touched on, there are some applications right now that are very difficult to to electrify. Um, And the last thing we want probably is huge, huge batteries being put in vehicles just because every now and then you want to do this long, really long journey. Um, So I think there is a we've got to actually be a bit more sophisticated about the way that we uh, regulate and and analyse these things. And, And to me, that's moving beyond the sort of tailpipe to this principle of life cycle analysis. Let's look at the complete vehicle, its complete impact on greenhouse gas from cradle to grave, and then let's target that complete picture. One of the challenges we've got is that an electric vehicle is zero emissions as defined by government at the tailpipe. The bigger the battery, the more the embedded resources and greenhouse gas and other things. So it's really about getting the right size battery and then, and I can't believe I'm saying this, sweating it. You want to drive your miles. You know, we don't want to encourage sort of um, uh, proliferation of driving around, but actually a battery electric vehicle is really good when it's sweated and really bad if it's not used at all. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges I think we've got to get to. And, and I think the hybrids, there's probably a more interesting policy that was uh, mooted to me this morning. Shouldn't we be putting a date on the end of sale of fossil fuels? Uh, now that might actually drive the renewable fuel industry. You know, our submission to the to the proposal was actually the plug-in hybrids should be allowed for a little bit longer, but we should be really aggressive about putting renewable fuels in them. Uh, so, if you want to have a combustion engine, let's make sure that is pushing down to 90 percent reduction in greenhouse gas as well, so that you can kind of justify, and then you can start to play tunes between the combustion engine and the battery sizing to suit. So there are some engineering principles that get it starts to get a bit more sophisticated and your regulations need to be a bit more sophisticated to support those. Well, just as an add-on, can I come and then drive right between the middle of you on this? Because um, as someone who's been, you know, four years in a battery electric and a plug-in hybrid, my hybrid, even though I know how to use it and most of the journeys are short, the one or two long journeys means I'm averaging about 28 miles per gallon, right? 
on the brochure in excess of 150. So, and that's with me charging it every day and minimizing petrol miles. So uh, I'm nearer Sam on that one. Um, however, if the government are gonna get it right on their consultation, UK government on significant zero miles. So in essence, the petrol engine or the combustion engine is a range extender. You know, it's a secondary source rather than a primary source. Then I can kind of see a way where there's a transition. But the one thing I also want to pick you up on, Andy, is, is even with synthetic fuels uh, or you know, you know, low carbon fuels, you answer the climate change carbon question. You don't answer the air quality agenda. And one of the things that's really interesting in the UK is we've just had our first officially confirmed death th through air quality. So there are nearly 40,000 people die prematurely every year in the UK from the impacts of poor air quality. And the biggest driver of that poor air quality is combustion engines. We breach minimum European air quality standards twice a day in most cities at rush hour. So I think the thing for me is, is Andy, if we're going to have that cradle to grave richness in the, in the carbon of the transport, we mustn't ignore the unintended consequences around air quality and that agenda as well, because that's what's driving the zero emission zones, not necessarily the carbon piece. So I think there's a, a real richness in that. So I, I think I'm agreeing with both of you, which is, which is a, you know, interesting, really. But I think um, it, it will be, be a, you know, a, a challenge. I think that's a really, really good point. I, I, if, you, I, you know, if we're putting uh, our own experiences on the table, so I've been running a vehicle for over five, six, seven years now almost. Um, managed to get over 250 miles per gallon out of it from a 10 and a half kilowatt hour usable battery. Uh, that probably defines what the vehicle is to, to most people who know. So the fact that you're able to do that with a very, very small battery, 16 kilowatt hours uh, installed, but 10 and a half usable, um, that means that there are models of operation that, that can be serviced in, in this different way. I mean, Graham is absolutely right about air quality. And, you know, we are one of the first people to, to advocate for zero emissions in urban city centres. Firstly, it's, it's right to do from an air quality perspective. It's also just so right from an engineering perspective, that transient operation, you know, you've got to electrify the powertrain in city centres, buses, taxis, delivery vehicles, you know, Sam did it, he lived and breathed it 10, 12 years ago. Um, so zero emission zones, to me, are a really good policy to make that happen. It's then your long distance. And as, as Graham knows well, you know, we're, we're just sort of grappling with how we are going to deliver long distance in heavy truck. Um, ultimately, that's got to be zero tailpipe emissions. But how to get there is, is quite a challenge. So there's still a few steps to go through. Uh, and the question originally was about whether the hybrid five-year opportunity between 30 and 35 was right or wrong. I think for an awful lot of people, it will be unnecessary, but there may be some places where actually it's a necessary evil, if I can put it that way. Uh, but let's see if we can decarbonize the fuel aggressively to, to try and make that evil a little bit less evil than it would be otherwise. No, thank you. Really, really, really great points there. And I probably had about three or four questions that were kind of bouncing around in my in my head there when you were talking about great debate there. We with the sterling work the likes of GridSurf are, uh, are delivering now, innovative charging strategies, on-route charging, the elephant in the room for me, and, and, and compounded by the fact, you know, like around um, emissions in city centres, is with, with EVs is that, you know, we, we look at 10 million EVs by 2030, 
with circa 35 to 40 to 45 percent of consumers with no off-street parking. I guess probably Sam um, and, and Andy, you've been living and breathing it in London. You know, the majority of, of, of houses in the city, in the city there, they don't have off-street parking and therefore no accessibility to home charging. The government set aside 27 billion for renewed road building, but no mention of EV street charging in that in that world. Is is this the right course of action? And if not, what can we do to resolve this 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 situation? So I, I, for, 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 I think firstly, let's let's look at some of the things that we're trying to do. So, uh, yeah, roughly a third, maybe forty percent of house houses don't have off-street parking. Twenty, nearly twenty-five percent of houses don't have a car. So there's actually quite a big proportion who don't have access to a car anyway already, either because they don't need it or indeed because they can't afford it. So. Um, now, arguably, we want that to increase. We actually want more people to think about not owning a car and using different forms of transport, be they electric scooters to get to an electric bus, to get to an electric train, to travel where they need to, be they shared vehicles, be they demand responsive sort of electric um, minibuses, all sorts of different operations. But part of the transport decarbonisation agenda is about changing people's attitude and relationship with transport a little bit. So it's not an anti-car, it's about how do we move around in a slightly different way. I think it's also worth saying that there is money there for on-street residential charging. Uh, One of the challenges that the government's faced is getting the local authorities to take that up and and put them in the ground. You know, local authorities are struggling with capacity to think about how to do this. There is money on the table. There's another 20 million provided, I think, uh, last year. Um, and it, it's, it's starting to take, take shape. There's starting to be more going. So we're looking at those, those issues. Um, it's very, very actively being, uh, being considered. And you've then got this, this fact that actually a lot of the vehicles you buy now don't need to charge every night. You probably only need to charge once a week at most for most average people. And then suddenly a fast charging or even just a regular, if I call it regular rapid, the 50 kilowatt um, is, is more than adequate for those, for those sorts of applications. So it's a whole spectrum of things. The, the obligation to provide every owner of every car with a, an overnight charge isn't actually probably the right model uh, in the long term. Now, Sam will be able to talk far better about the sort of the other options uh, beyond that. But um, yeah, I think, I think we need to just take a step back and understand where we're trying to get to uh, before we sort of try to replicate what we've got and and because uh, uh, that's probably not the right model for transport going forward. Yeah, I, I really like this question, Seth, and I could answer it for an hour, I think. Um, uh, it's, <laughs> I thought it, you might like it. Yeah. yeah, it raises a lot of points. Your elephant in the room is a really good one. And it's something that uh, Graham's heard me wax, wax on about in terms of you know, we're at one or one or two percent of, of registered vehicles on the road are battery electric today. You know, and, and when you get to the sort of, as you say in your question, you know, the 30, 40 percent starts to get to the pure EVs. That's an awful lot more EVs on the roads today than we have now. Um, <clears throat> and on-street charging for me has always been a, a bit of a, I'm not, I'm not quite sure about it because um, it, it's one of those things whereby, you, as Andy said, there's you don't necessarily need to charge all, all every every day. Um, but there'll be the odd occasion where you really need to. And if there's only a couple of charge charge points on a street of 70 cars and, and they're occupied by someone else who's having who's using it, then it doesn't work. 
um, because it's it, it, and it goes back to another point that Andy made around around the battery sizes. There's a degree and, and something I said earlier about culture. You know, you might not go very far in your vehicle, but every now and again you want to go on a long journey, and, and, and culturally we all want to know that we can do that, even if we hardly ever do. I think at the same time, you want to be able to know when you park your car on the street, that you can definitely charge it exactly when you want to. And, and putting two or three chargers on each street is never going to cover the, the mass uptake that we've got coming up in the next few years. So either you put a charge, a slow charger, but it doesn't have to be fast, but very, very, you know, three kilowatts on every single charging, um, every single parking base, sorry, on every single street. Or you, I, I don't really see how it's going to work because certainly where I, where I used to live in Twickenham, if, if there was... There's a hundred hundred cars on the street. You know, it, it, how on if, if fifty of them are electric, then how on earth are we ever going to be able to facilitate fifty of those hundred cars with a couple of charges at the end of the bet? It's just never going to work. I just can't see the the practicality, and I think it'll be it'll hamper the industry if people feel like, well, I would have an electric car, but I can't charge it when I want to, so I'm not going to bother. So I think I think there's all sorts of things at play here in terms of the practicality and, and the usability of EVs generally in these in these more built up areas. I guess um, we talked about uh, the 1.3 billion earmark to support EVs and grid and infrastructure. Uh, do you feel we're finally in a better place to support the growth of EVs or does it need further investment? Oh, that's a good one. Can I dive in on this one? Because I think <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a strange thing that happened that you know some people seem to believe either government need to do this as a single being, fix it once, fix it for everyone at one end, you know, a master plan. At the other end, there's the just leave it to market. So I'm going to sit in the middle and say, actually, you need a bit of both. Markets fix most things if there is enough time. The one thing we now do not have is enough time just to leave it to market. So what we're seeing at the moment is that if there's a super, super, really competitive market in the provision of charge points, you know, the provision of service offering. So you've got GridServe and their offering. You've got others either competing with GridServe or very different offerings. And I think that is really important. That's where you get innovation. You get innovation in the, for consumers. You get innovation in the technology. You get lots and lots of innovation. The one thing that is a struggle, and I know because I, my inbox tells me, is grid is often the problem. If there's adequate grid capacity, then there's no problem. But what consumers need is continuity and consistency, which then gives them confidence. You know, the ability to go outside the range of the battery, as Sam says. But the one thing that's not consistent is the grid, right? The, the grid has been built organically over time to serve an electricity consumer. Lighting, heating, you know, um, it was never designed at the outset to serve transport. So it, is, it will morph to serve transport. But that's where there's a, an observable market failure. Right. You know, the grid infrastructure is a big, expensive 40 year asset. And most charge point companies business horizon is seven to 10 years. So there's a disconnect between the asset you're buying, a grid connection and your business plan. So governments have observed this. And that's where they have the UK's project rapid fund, the 950 million. And the idea being is you put adequate future proof capacity consistently across the strategic road network. But then what you do is you don't do the charging. You absolutely leave that to the competitive and very, very liquid market for the EV charging companies. Because the thing that people often forget is if you put in grid capacity to fix cars on day one, who's thinking about buses, coaches, trucks, heavy goods vehicles? If you're thinking about a grid connection for charging a battery, who's thinking about 
hydrogen if that were to take off. If you're putting a grid capacity into surcharging, who's thinking about connecting solar, peaking plant, battery storage? So you need for at least the grid connection piece to be thinking about the wider things that use the electricity grid to de-risk that so that the charging industry can really excel. So I think the thing for me is where there is an observable market failure, it's right for government to intervene, but only intervene in a small way for the bit they need to intervene is because it should then unlock market to get on and do what market does best. So there you go. That's my hobby horse on this one, but I hope that helps. No, thank you. So I was thinking about this um, a couple of, in fact, it's been on the front of my mind for, for a while now. You know, so it's a hypothetical situation, for example, we go to EVs and we have e-trucks, for example, and they are up and down the M1 or the M6 daily, um, and they need to charge. Uh, and the amount of power required to charge these vehicles and, and the number of e-trucks that will be on the roads in the future, do we, do we have enough capacity on the network? You speak to the likes of WPD or UKPN or other DNOs as well. And I think the consensus is, you know, they're pretty much in a place where they feel that they're, they've got enough capacity. They'll have clever load management systems. They've got enough infrastructure in place. But do you, do you believe that's the case or does there need to be extra work in there? There's two things here. One is about wires. One is about peak capacity and one's about volume of energy. So let me just give you a, a little context. If you think of a motorway service rest stop in the UK, a typical motorway rest stop has a one megawatt grid connection. And that's for making pizzas and burgers and whatever it is else you have at a motorway service area, okay? If you add six high power chargers, you know, up to 350 kilowatt chargers, you're gonna need a 1.25 megawatt connection. So that's more than double. If you're gonna serve enough grid capacity to replace the petrol refueling station, you know, by 2035 or say, you're gonna need an eight to 10 megawatt grid connection. If you're then gonna serve buses, trucks and coaches, you're gonna need a 20 megawatt grid connection. So this is why planning for the wires to be in the right places, do it right, do it once, which is what Project Rapid is trying to do. You know, build it right. It's that field of dreams moment, Seth. You know, if you build it, they will come, right? Build the wires and then the charging infrastructure can scale. The other thing here is that when people say, you know, can the grid cope? Well, this is an organic market. It's changing organically. So grids have changed over time to accommodate wind and solar and the changes of demand. And therefore, grids are not static. We, we, we get bigger, smaller. We, we breathe with the markets we're serving. So part of having strong targets, strong timeline, allows us to make sure that the right wires are in the right place at the right time. So that's the wires piece. Finally, um, what we actually need is government's 10 point plan in the UK was to go to 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. So less than nine years time. So it's taken us 20 years to get to 10 gigawatts. And in nine years, we need to get to 40. That's huge. That's a huge amount of clean energy. So what we actually need is transport and heat to become clean so that you've got somewhere for that clean energy to go. And that will then also help stimulate things like smart charging. So I know at, uh, with, at Sam's business, they've got battery storage that sits behind their chargers. That allows them to flex the grid, right, when it's cheapest and cleanest, but the consumer sees no difference. So in the same way, 
over the next nine or 10 years, as we grow clean energy generation, what we actually need is clean transport and heat to actually help make that transition possible. And that's why it's important that it's not just a transport lens and why it's always right to have a, an energy market grid lens on these things, because we see both ends of what's on our wires. Hope that answers your question. But the grid will come, right? It, yeah. it has to. <laughs> and at the end of Graham's grid, you know, is, as, as he's made point, you know, with grid serve type locations, we've made provisions for commercial commercial traffic. So we've got, and, and by provision, I mean, we've got dedicated laybys at Braintree, for example, for the purpose of putting high power charges specifically for lorries and buses in tandem with, as he says, a you know, five megawatt grid connection and six megawatt hours of battery storage on site. So between the combination of the two, plus the physical presence of putting apportioning space to accommodate these vehicles, because that's the other key thing that, you know, in the service station network at the moment, there's, there's no, you know, you struggle to, 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 to charge an electric van, let alone anything else, because there's no infrastructure yet. So we've got to think about where we place this stuff and how and the position in which we place it even, um, as well as the, the cables which, which Graham's providing to get to get the power there. I think it's, it's, it's worth, uh, Graham touched on it really well, but trucks, long distance trucks, are right at the extremes of what we need to electrify and, and, and where we think we can get to. And that's, you know, it, we are talking now about you know, 500, 800 kilowatt hour batteries on a truck being where, what you, where you'd need to be, uh, and potentially multi-megawatt charging capability. Now, that does start to get pretty scary um, in terms of that volume of energy. So is a better way of doing that either hydrogen? Uh, I mean, electricity is great. To, it's, it's one of the best things at being transmitted around and, and uh, flexibility and speed. It's a bit rubbish to store. It's not, you know, it's not a nice thing to store. It's, you know, batteries have got a lot of embedded resources in them. Hydrogen is rubbish at being moved around, but you can store it a bit more easily. Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's opportunities there. That's where hydrogen may play a role in that long distance. Uh, and the other thing is catenaries. Um, we've got a fairly effective rail system that uses overhead wires. Uh, we ought to put a bit more freight on that. Uh, that would that would probably help if we can create the capacity in terms of movement. Um, but actually, catenaries, there's some interesting trials going on. And, you know, we haven't yet determined what the right solution is. And we need to kind of work out what we're going to do before we put all the wires in the ground or over the, over the motorways, because you don't want to do this twice, or worst case, do all three infrastructure systems, charging, catenary and hydrogen, that wouldn't be a cost-effective solution. So we've got to do a bit of thinking about some of these challenges, the coach and the heavy long-haul truck, um, to see how best to solve those. Um, and I, I come back, you know, it's a really, really interesting space to be working in at the moment because the opportunities are huge uh, and, and they are more than a match for some of the challenges, huge challenges that we face. So Andy, can I dive in there? I love the fact that you think trucks are at the extreme. I currently have a proposal on my desk that's looking at charging a ship. That needs a nine megawatt connection for charging one ship for a cross-channel ferry. So I think the thing for me is it's a relative perspective thing. I think in-road transport, yes, the truck is at the extreme. But actually, when we think about decarbonising transport, it's not just about surface vehicles. We've got a clean aviation. We've got a clean shipping. This is such a, a broad spectrum. But also even things like thinking about things like ports, big heavy haulage in, big rail in, ship going in and out. So actually, it's almost you need to think about these things almost multimodally. It's not 
in the with the blinkers on how do I fix trucks it's how do we fix transport in its broadest sense so then that gets so for me I think you know on the decarbonisation journey cleaning transport is actually one of the easiest things right when we start thinking about heat and heavy industry it gets even more complicated um, you know, so so you know. I think yeah. This is this is why it's it's right, and, and it's great that, um, that that Schneider and, and Seth particularly is bringing folks from the different areas together to have the richness of conversation, because you know it is a it is a challenging proposition to get to net zero. So this is this is my really open ended question here. Maybe it's a little bit unfair and things, but you know, between two thousand seventeen two thousand twenty, I think there were uh, about seven thousand public charges installed every year. Um, you know, looking at the policy exchange, they talk around the need to install you know, thirty-five thousand public charges each year during the twenty twenties to, in order to have enough infrastructure in place. So, what what do you believe the EV landscape will look like in ten years' time? And, and this is an open-ended, this is blue sky thinking kind of question. So, I'm calling upon all your knowledge and insight, and, and you obviously think about it on a regular basis. So, where do you believe that landscape to be in ten years? Well, uh, so. I think there will be certain areas that will electrify very quickly. So buses, uh, I think, will electrify extremely quickly. We were at, I think it was about 60% of buses registered last year were electric. Um, now, granted, last year was not uh, a typical year for bus registration, so put that in, into perspective. But, you know, the aggressive nature of, uh, of what government are doing right now with the Zebra scheme. So there are some real key areas, urban transient, uh, you know, mass transit, electrify those really quickly. Taxis, we ought to have an aggressive process for that. Um, I think small vehicles, you know, we're seeing in the scooter and, and what we're doing at the moment with the MCIA, the motorcycle industry that represent that sector, great opportunities in that space as well to, to think about transport differently. Um, I think that the, you know, we, we won't need much of the 2030 to 35 caveat around hybrids. I think we'll see the electrification of cars much more quickly and, and it's already ramping up and we're seeing that that happen. So I, I think we'll get there uh, comfortably and we might need a few bands and a few a few sticks to just mop up the odd uh, the odd middle-aged men that want a V8 still. And, and I put myself in that category perhaps. Um, trucks, I think, is more interesting. Trucks, I do think, I mean, I, I think Graham's Graham's absolutely right that you know my 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 world is sits on the road. And thankfully, I don't have to worry too much about uh, aviation or, or marine. But but those are some really big challenges. And coming back to one of the things that uh, that um, Graham did mention, in both of those cases, the tools on the table at the moment are combustion of either ammonia or potentially e-fuels, sustainable aviation fuels, which don't remove this problem of NOx and uh, and and the other downsides of combustion engines. So yeah, we've got we've got some pretty big thinking to do there. And that's just transport. So I, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the charge points that you've spoken about, um, one stat that come, come, keeps coming back to me is that we've got this aggressive, we need to put lots more charge points in the ground. We were at one stage putting 17,000 smart meters in homes a day, I think, back in October last, last year, October, November. We can mobilize huge resources to go and do things relatively quickly if we need to. Look at the speed that we responded to the pandemic. If the motivation is there and the government backing is there and the public the public sort of psyche, actually, we can move mountains almost. Um, 
So, you know, I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. You know, actually, I think we can really move quickly on this if everybody is coming around and galvanising around that agenda and the the, the uh, speed needed, if you like, the, uh, the emergency of this agenda, which absolutely is in the public psyche now. So I'm pretty optimistic about, about this, whole, uh, this whole journey. One, one point for me, Seth, and speak slightly to what Andy just said in terms of the, and, and what you, you phrased in the question, in terms of the number of charge points. Um, I always challenge that and say, what does that really mean? I mean, it's, in a smart meter example, you only have one smart meter per household. So it's, it's, what, it's a ratio of one to one. Um, if you put tens of thousands of charges in, where? And, you know, each, each charger has one or two connectors, and typically you have one or two chargers per location. Now, if you spread those numbers all over the country, that's not necessarily going to help. So you don't necessarily need tens of thousands of more locations. But we, you know, grid servers, an example, has 36 charges in one location. So that covers an awful lot of people simultaneously without needing to spread them all over the place. So I think there is a risk factor. If, if we go on the assumption they got we need loads of them and they've got to go everywhere, we end up with loads of kit that gets stuck in the legacy era of not working very well or is underutilized because it's in the wrong place. And the ones which are really strategically placed are completely oversubscribed. You can never use it because somebody else is on it. So I think as, as the uptake goes up, we've got to think about how what's the best way of applying charging infrastructure in this country. And it might be that we need that many, but certainly not with more pins on the map everywhere, because I don't think that will solve the problem. It would be great for today and for us EV drivers in the next few weeks or months or years even, that we have that that mix all across the place. But when we're no longer the minority and we're part of the majority, that's not going to stack it. It's not going to work, in my opinion, anyway. So we've got to have we've got to have not just grid serve, electric forecourts, but we've got to have there's always going to be a mix of charging requirements. But I'm very wary of just putting 50 kilowatts everywhere because I just don't think that will fix the problem. I'm going to add a little one in there, which is a bit different to both of you in the fact that I think there's some social norms happening here. When I remember back to things like the smoking ban, people would enter a meeting and say, I'm really sorry, I'm a smoker. And then they'd disappear off for a cigarette. They'd, they'd be very apologetic. I'm already finding people who I meet. The first thing they say is, hi, nice to meet you. Um, oh, I, I drive a diesel. Oh, but I'm going to fix that soon. You know, I think, so I think one, one of the things that I think here is, is we're looking at this through the lens of you know, the engineering of the vehicles and the engineering of the grid. And, you know, we're humans. People are generally concerned about climate change. They're also concerned about air quality. They want better products to make better decisions. So I think there's something around that sort of that sort of social acceptability um, around this transition. And I think that will have a huge sway. I liken it to things like um, none of us knew we needed a smartphone or an iPhone till somebody showed us one. And then we just thought, wow, that's brilliant. And isn't that better than a mobile phone, right? And so we, we leapt in and you see that hockey stick uptake. In the same way, I think the consumption of, of, of e-mobility in all its forms um, is generally better than the equivalent. Um, and I think by the time you add the air quality agenda and the climate agenda to that, people, you know, that social acceptability will drive this even faster than we think. So even coming back to you know, the early point on having a ban, do we really think the ban is actually going to be the stick that's needed? It's a signal. I think people will make a lot of decisions in their own time on that journey anyway. So I think human behaviour, the behavioural piece is really, really, really interesting. That's good. Really thorough answer to that. I guess a topical question that I have now is around as we, as we hopefully leave the COVID pandemic and move to a more 
digital culture and i've been experiencing this digital culture probably for this accelerated digital culture for probably 15 months or so now how do you believe that will impact ev adoption so i guess probably for my part as an example you know i used to i used to um as a, as a marketing lead i used to look after factories in in scarborough in leeds in telford and would do 35 40 40 000 business miles per year um, and now, you know, a lot majority of the time is, is from the kitchen or from the office in in, in Leeds, which is our is our one of our headquarters for the, the mobility business. So my mileage has just dropped exponentially. Do, do you believe that's a is that out of the ordinary, or do you believe that to be a you know the norm these days? And, and, and as I say, does this impact you know the adoption of electric vehicles for, for users these days? Are they becoming more thoughtful, I guess, in in terms of their journeys? I- I, I, from from our perspective, you know, as a as a team, you know, we 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 went into the lockdown a week before the official lockdown and have operated entirely remotely for over a year now. Um, and yes, there are some things that are good to get back around the table as a team, and 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 that social interaction, that face to face, is important. But we absolutely will not be going back to five days a week in an office in central London with. You know, ten people commuting in from all over the country to to do that, and it's it's just unnecessary. And actually, a a hybrid model of working, uh, I'm convinced, will be what we see. I think in your case, and, and I think it's quite interesting. Actually, that sort of mega mileage, if I can put it that way, the, the people spending literally pounding the streets. I would hope that that will change. That a lot more of that is done remotely, and that, that we're more selective about the journeys we make. Uh, and that we we therefore we think about them, and when we're thinking about those journeys, and that they're not every day, you know, day in day out. Actually, suddenly you open up new opportunities to think about how you take that journey. And well, would the train work for this one? Or actually, is there is there is there a coach that would that would actually take me there and take me back? Coach is very underrated in my view, but that's, a, that's another another story entirely. Um, you know, I think I think there's it's about opening our eyes to not just choosing the car because it happens to be sat there on our drive and it's easy. Can we create convenience in transport without that automatically meaning a personally owned car? And, and people want convenience, you know, that's, that's ultimately what it is. Um, so, I, you know, to respond to you quickly, I, I think we, we have seen a change. Um, I hope we don't go back to where we were. Um, there's a risk right now, I think, uh, Heavy transport is back up to pre-pandemic levels. Vans are pretty much getting up there. Car transport, I think, to the latest stats, is about 70% of where it was before. Um, and we're not even out of, of, uh, of full lockdown yet. So there is a danger right now that actually we are going back. Having having seen the light in, in this uh, digital world, um, have we learned from that? So it's a, I think it's a really good question. And again, I'm optimistic that we have found... A, a new normal, um, as it was referred to uh, a year ago, uh, that that, uh, that is different and better than the old one. So an uh, interesting one for me, uh, Seth, thinking about this, is um, we probably in the UK from about middle of May are likely to see the UK government's decarbonisation of transport plan. Now, this has been long touted. And interestingly, I think we'll be the first G7 country to actually have a decarbonisation of transport plan. So it's a bit of a first, it's unlikely to be perfect, but I think what will be interesting for me is, is we understand the principles that it's aiming to do. So the first thing is to travel less, right? So it plays beautifully to Andy's point about how do we create the new normal, you know, the digital world, um, hybrid 
you know, uh, working and what have you. But so the first principle is travel less. The next one is then active travel. So walking, cycling, running. If you then go to go a little bit further than walking, cycling, running will take you, then electrically assisted. So things like e e electric scooters, electrically assisted bikes. The next step then takes you into public transport, but at least make sure it's clean. So, you know, buses and coaches particularly. Then it takes you on further to things like um, shared mobility. So the opportunity for car clubs and, and, you know, clusters of people sharing and pooling a resource. Then the next step is, um, I guess, the equivalent of your electric Uber, you know, a, you know a, a, an on-demand type service. And then finally, if you've done all of those things and you still can't find a reason for travel, have a personal vehicle, but at least make it clean. So it'll be really interesting for me is, is the, the, the watchwords that I, I had been uh, sort of you know, given around what we're to expect is it will be bold, right? It will be um, ambitious, but it will be credible and deliverable. So I think the interesting thing for me is what will we learn from this government policy? Because it gives us a level of certainty, but also then how will we reiterate and refine? Because the one thing I'm always conscious with sort of big government policy is there's not a one size fits all. What you actually need is big policy interpreted locally. But that then loops back around to that problem of local councils have got grants to do on street charging, but they're worrying about social care and emptying the bins and, you know, other things. So I think for me, it's about how does that join up? So I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's a change has happened. How will it perpetuate and what will the decarbonisation of transport plan observe and form, you know, lead to more formal policy? Thank you. So final couple of questions on the, on the EV piece, if that's okay. So first of all, battery degradation in an EV. Does this exist in EVs? And if so, do we know what levels we're seeing this degradation? That's, that's a big question, that one, isn't it? And I think there's lots of different opinions on the matter. Um, I mean, speaking personally, we've been running two EVs now uh, as a two-car family. I've, see, I've definitely seen a, a drop-off in the last few years from both vehicles, but it's but it's low single percentages of, of, of range. Um, I think Tesla say that they, they, they lose about a percent a year on average, I believe, in, in their degradation, which is perfectly acceptable. Um, the, the, the history of the Nissan Leaf and the, and the performance and the rigidity of that battery pack seems to be absolutely exemplary. Um, so I, I don't I don't foresee it to be a, a huge concern, and I don't I don't think there's this this doomsday scenario of these batteries falling off a cliff. They're not they're not made, they're not designed, they're not controlled in the same way as a mobile phone that does almost by design. You know, car batteries are entirely different, and and, and for me at least, I think they're they're, they're demonstrating more than acceptable robustness over time providing you don't abuse them you know you can't leave them empty for too long we can't have them fully charged up in the driveway for too long either there has to be a bit of education piece to keep in that in that window of acceptability for the battery to perform in its best but um but with that in mind i think if, if, if we're reasonably um cautious and tesla are very good at, at informing the driver on all time at all times where they should be in the window to make sure that they're getting the, the best out of the battery and i think provided we do that then i think the robustness will, will stand true for um, for a while. I don't know what the other guys think. I, I, I think Sam's absolutely right. I mean, if we go way back, you know, whether it's early buses or indeed the early cars, you know, we've seen problems with some of those early batteries. They, they were almost prototype vehicles that we were dealing with. And and, and the problem is that, that everybody remembers something bad from way back, but they, they don't quite remember the something really good from yesterday. 
Um, and I think, you know, the technology has moved on in leaps and bounds. Uh, importantly, the data, the management of batteries and the data that you can now get and the way that people are analysing these on board with some pretty sophisticated systems enables, you know, and it's, it's, it, data is everything in this world very often. And, and actually that will deliver some really, really robust batteries. Um, we're seeing warranties extend on them. Right now, we still model in our life cycle analyses, we still model a battery replacement for a vehicle in about eight years, primarily because the warranties typically are eight years as, as, as required by uh, the plug-in car grant and things. Um, but anecdotally, and I think Sam, Sam's right, and Sam's probably got more anecdotal evidence than I have, we're seeing these batteries actually extend out. Um, and then we've also got to think about the recycling, and that's becoming a really, really sophisticated area. Whether it's reuse or recycle, um, that's a really important area. So already we're seeing people, you know, there are people out there replacing cells within Nissan Leaf batteries. It's very often one component within the battery that goes uh, rather than the whole battery. So it's, you know, it's, it's a market that's fundamentally changing. And uh, you know, stories of battery demise are uh, are overstated. I think is uh, is, is probably my uh, my summary. I mean, Seth, just diving in finally, I completely agree with both Sam and Andy. Um, in a world where we have much more renewables and much more variability in the power supply, flexibility is everything. So I think the interesting thing from my perspective is the battery will outlive the car, and what we're likely to see in the future is that the battery will be second lifed want of trying to use the right term you know reused repurposed and it's likely to be end up in a different box in the cupboard under the stairs or hanging on the wall of your garage and what that will do is allow flexibility in the grid but also the ability for you to have self-consumption you know have solar on the roof charge a battery live off your own battery you know the the market dynamics of the energy system will change business model innovation will change but there is plenty of life to be had out of a battery after it's had a life in a car in providing um, suitability and, and, and beneficial uh, operation to the, to the grid and the energy market. So, uh, you know, even then, that's why you often see, um, uh, you know, the, the car industry is really interested in, the, in, in having your car back at the end of life to pull the battery out of it. I mean, even anecdotally, just uh, just have a look at uh, uh, online of, of, of crashed electric vehicles. The residual of the battery is is huge. All the value is in the, in the battery, not in the car. So I don't think they're ever going to become a disposable item anytime soon. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a good example of, of Graham's Graham there because I, I own one EV and I lease the other one, and the one I own is an i3 with a 33 kilowatt hour battery. And when that finally loses, you know, I, I intend to keep that car for many many years. When the battery starts to degrade which it will inevitably at some point exactly as you said i want to take it out put it in a box put it in the cupboard that can continue to power my house thank you very much and then i'll put a new set of batteries in which will probably end up being in a position where i've doubled the range of the vehicle in the process i suspect by the time i get around to it so not only do i then have my own power source but then i've doubled the range of the vehicle which which can continue to go for another 10 years so so that that you know that's the way that i'm looking at it and uh and, and I, I'm, I'm almost in an ironic sort of way looking forward to when those batteries have that point where they they're just justifiably it's now time to take them out so i can do something else with them i just want to be able to do that but i'm gonna to have to wait a few years until i get to I get to that point i think you know so it's a sort of it's yeah it, it works both ways but yeah but uh, yeah i think it, definitely we need to do that and the other thing as well on this is it breaks my heart that i've got nearly 100 kilowatt hours of energy on my driveway and i can't do anything with it 
there's no i don't have it because they're both ccs they don't have any vehicle to grid elements just yet you know it doesn't exist yet it will do but when, when it comes to the point where i can use that 100 kilowatt hours combined of those two battery vehicles and, and use it for my house then you know then i'm singing you know it'd be, it, i just can't wait for that that day so there's lots of things like that that we can do with these batteries to, to ensure that they're, they're, they're powering us in many, many different ways, not just when we're, we're going from A to B. Okay. So the, my final question around EVs for you. Thanks very much for that, Sam. That's a really good point. And, and everyone else as well. Thanks, Sam. And Andy thinks it. What do, you, what do you like about driving your EV? And what do you miss most about um, like the internal combustion engine? Oh. So what did you notice? When you first got your first EV, what, what did you notice about it, what what does it do that uh, you know an an ice vehicle doesn't do? Well, I, I going sorry, I've jumped in there, guys. I still remember the first time I got on an electric vehicle. It was a motorbike in China, and it nearly scared me half to death because I twisted the throttle, and all of a sudden, the front wheel was in the air because that because of that instant torque, instant acceleration. You know, and, and that, at that point, I can still remember the dusty road I went down, going, "This is amazing," <laughs> you know. And I've still got that sensation. But I can still, you know, I still every time I get in my, my cars now, you know, I, I love that acceleration, and, and that's that's the bit I love. You know, I guess I used my my, my parents were racing drivers, and I, there's a degree of a degree of, um, of racing in our blood. And I think the idea of running and, and using a manual gearbox or something, I you know, was quite good fun. Um, which I probably never will do again. So, you know, that I guess that's the only thing I can think of in terms of a nice car that I quite enjoy changing gear and you know, driving a car in a sort of mechanical way. But, but I, you know, it, it, it was a, I, I quite, quite happily get rid of all of that and, and drive my Tesla instead, to be honest, because it's, it's, it's a joy. Go on then, Andy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. I mean, I've, I've been driving, you know, my background at, uh, at one of the test proving grounds. So I got to drive, drive lots and lots of different vehicles. Um, I think in terms of uh, the electric and, and being an engineer by trade, actually one of the things that I love about it is getting my energy back and, and, and that whole regeneration and the fact that actually I can drive down the road and, and, and then I can, you know, by engineering it and by driving it properly, you can get an awful lot of energy back. And, and that sort of whole energy management on the vehicle, and we did a study around the differences needed in driving, obviously with a combustion vehicle, Everything is influenced by the way you accelerate because as soon as you decelerate, you're off the throttle, DC, uh, decel fuel cut off, you're not using any fuel regardless. In an electric vehicle, it's the complete opposite. It's, it's all about how you brake is, is what your performance of your drive in terms of fuel consumption. And that, yes, like I say, I'm a, I'm a geeky engineer. That's the sort of thing that I like. I think going back to you know, Sam's point, the um, I still drive a manual uh, diesel um, uh, on occasions uh, for for the and and a, and a manual car, particularly um, a performance manual car, is a more visceral experience. I would say in terms of uh, that sort of thing. So that's that's an aspect, and I I suspect we may well see that sort of thing in in leisure and motorsport still retain some of that uh, aspect. Uh, you know, be an interesting space. Uh, I've got in trouble for saying that in other quarters. So um, that's. that's but yeah, it's actually about the engineering and, and the, the, the principle that, that suddenly I can get a whole bunch of energy back. And, uh, and, and that, having said that, having the, um, uh, the regen drop out when you're going over uh, wet manhole covers because there's a lack of grip can be a little bit disconcerting sometimes. So uh, yeah, there are things that still need to be uh, tweaked to, to, to make it a, a, a very natural uh, experience. I think I, I think I'll agree with both of you. I mean, yeah, for, for me, it was, yeah, about the torque and the acceleration, but also how quiet it is. The fact that the centre of gravity is low, it's an overall better driving experience. I do, however, miss 
um, you know, because of the age I am and have grown up with, you know, a combustion engine, you know, that induction noise, you know, that reaching for the red line, dabbing the, you know, the clutch, grabbing another gear, you know, that enthusiastic Sunday drive is, is, is different. Um, the other thing I noticed with the, with the electric car is with a combustion engine car, you hear the induction. That's the noise you hear mostly. What I find really interesting with the electric car is you almost hear the torque. You can actually hear how hard the transmission and tires are working. So it's not bad or good. It's just different. Um, but I think that's why for me, I think, you know, and to Andy's comment, I think in the future we could find having a few more geared um, um, you know, electric vehicles for the enthusiasts. So there's still that sort of added connection. But yeah, I think it is, uh, it's, uh, I think in the cold light of day, when you've not been to a petrol station for some time, you don't miss the smell. You don't miss the grubby refueler. Um, the nice thing about having an EV, and if you're lucky enough to have a driveway, is I wake up in the morning and I don't have to think about refueling because it's already been done for me. Um, Can I just add one more, Graham, to that? Yeah, go on. So uh, what, one other thing I love about, and it's, it's, it's an add-on to your, your point there about the driveway, is, um, is uh, one thing I do love is not necessarily driving an EV, but it's when I, and it's happened this winter, I went outside with the kids in tow to take them to school. I looked to my left, looked to my right. My neighbours my neighbors were both scratching the ice off the front of their cars with their credit cards, whereas mine was lovely, toasty and warm and defrosted and ready to go. Yeah. yeah and that, that, that just little things like that make it think, ah, this is nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm going to make one final comment, though. I'm going to play to Andy's. The, the electrical, you know, the energy system guy in me is really interested in that changing dynamic. Being an ex-wind farmer, right, when it's high wind, high solar days, you need somewhere to put that power. Batteries and heating and hot water is a good way to put it. In the same way, on a low wind, low solar day or for a slow solar period, you can pause charging and heating. Right. So for me, I'm really interested in not just the use of the product, but actually how it integrates into a changing energy system. So I think there's a multitude of dimensions here. But yes, in the same way Andy's interested in the engineering in the in the vehicle level, I'm interested in the engineering and the market development in the wider energy system to support this. So it's a really, really interesting and exciting space to be in, certainly. You could have asked that question, Seth, and we'd still be here an hour and a half later. I know, that's the thing. That's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time. I'm really conscious of time. But I just thought it was just quite a nice question because it's just fascinating just to listen to the, you know, its answers. Um, I'd like to touch on uh, e-buses, um, purely from a selfish point of view, because I've been working with Zima once with the policy, I think, with uh, with Daniel Hayes around it. But, you know, there are 32,000 buses in the UK and they need to go electric with cities shifting away from petrol and diesel to electric vehicles in order to reduce air pollution as we talked on earlier on, and meet carbon neutral goals. Um, electric buses are the future of local transport. I guess probably I'm just going to point a question at Andy now. Why is the government pushing so hard to promote e-buses? Well, be because it's a great thing to do, Seth. It's, it's, you know, it's uh, one of the things we've spoken about public uh, acceptance and that. We're unlikely to get people to get out of their car and get onto a diesel bus if we're still championing this this principle of low, you know, low air uh, improved air quality and uh, and low carbon impact. So let's get the solutions that we want in play to be zero emissions as quickly as possible, and then we've got a much better chance of encouraging people onto them because and and we might do that with with carrots, we might do it with sticks. You know, zero emission zones as a policy 
uh, once you've got zero emission buses and zero emission taxis available, you can impose a zero emission zone and say, you can have a car, but I want you to leave it outside the town at the park and ride, and we'll take you in on a nice clean bus, and you can charge your car if it's, you know, or, or you can, you know, fill it up, whatever. But actually, we want to get those solutions, zero emissions as quickly as possible. Um, it's it's a great sector. U- UK actually manufactures, I think it's 60, 70% of the buses that we sell here. So there's a UK, P- UK PLC industrial strategy here at play as well. Uh, we've got, you know, some really innovative bus manufacturers and, and providers here. Um, they are working very, very um, uh, aggressively and, and, and you know, with, with huge pace with the government on that. We've also got, you know, buses, we know where they're going to go. They follow a route. So actually, you've got a chance of putting the charging where you need it. Uh, and you've also got a chance of, of working with Graham's team and, and putting the buses where you need the, where, where the energy exists, potentially. Um, actually, converting bus depots over to full electric is quite challenging in some cases. And Graham, Graham and I have spoken about this in the past. You know, there is definitely an opportunity to, to put the bus depots where the energy is rather than trying to put the energy where the bus depot is, um, which may not be the right solution in some cases. So lots and lots of, you know, you've got things like, well, could we uh, multitask the um, the, the uh, charging system at the bus garage when the buses are out during the day? Can the taxis use it? Actually, let's solve some of those problems in those quite contained spaces, demonstrate the art of the possible and then convince people, actually, you don't need a car. You can use our buses, our taxis, our scooters, whatever those might be, to think about your transport differently. So I think, uh, you know, buses are getting a big, big bite of the cherry from in terms of government funding, no doubt about it. Um, and the truck sector, I would say, is is, is missing out in, in in respect to that to some extent. Uh, but it's it's um, you know we actually anticipate a zero emission, 100% zero emission buses, new sales. Probably by 2025, I wouldn't be at all surprised if our, all of our urban bus sales are fully zero emissions by, by that time. I'm not going to repeat what Andy said about bus garages because we're, I think we're, we're, we're very equal on this, aren't we, Andy? Um, the one thing for me is I think the important thing, Seth, and this comes back to the social piece, is the transition to clean transport needs to work for everybody. Now, at the moment, an EV is an expensive thing, right? If you're not in that marketplace, you feel left out. If you are, you know, there is definitely you know, the transition to net zero needs to leave no one behind. The great thing about a bus is you don't need to be able to be wealthy to use a bus. You don't even need to be old enough to have a driving license to use a bus. You know, the bus is the one that it's a real leveler, right? It's the one thing that is it's a universal transport service. And I think for me, it allows it has those co-benefits of the clean air piece, but it allows those who can't afford to get into an EV to be part of that electric revolution and the clean transport revolution. So I think that's why it's attracting a lot of that, a lot of that focus. It is, it, it, you know, the, the transition, any transition is always difficult, but we need to make sure that we don't leave people behind in that transition. And that's going to be really, really quite important. The other one, just on emission zones, Andy, the one thing I think we're going to find on emission zones is if you have an emission zone, the air quality will fall to a level in a town and then stop. And then people will scratch their heads and wonder why. The answer is gas boilers. Because one of the stats that I saw uh, about a week or 10 days ago is leaving a, you know, a gas boiler has the same air quality emissions as leaving a car idling on your driveway. And we'd never think about leaving a car idling on our driveway all day. So it'll be interesting to see how that learning around emission zones and around that social acceptability 
for public transport will then start to leach into how do we turn people into heating uh, their homes and cities in a different way. So that's a, probably a, a, a podcast for another day, Seth. But I think, so, I yeah. think what would be interesting is transport moves fastest as far as the transition. Um, everything else is a bit more difficult. So how do you take that learning through? And I think that EV and electrification of bus is that real level on the social piece. My final question on buses, very quickly, because again, pod conscious of the time, is that how does e-bus, how does an e-bus compare with hydrogen fuel cell buses? Is there room for both technologies, or would you favour one versus the other? I, I think, from, from our perspective, we, we're not trying to pick a winner. Um, what we're trying to do is to get a fair appraisal and a fair assessment process. Uh, the challenge with hydrogen is um, it's inefficient in terms of making it, moving it. Store, compressing it, storing it, and then converting it back into electricity. We know we're going to drive the wheels of our vehicles with an electric motor. That's pretty much a given. And we also know that our renewable electricity is going to be generated wind, solar. Um, so hydrogen is uh, a piece of the chain, but it does bring in some, uh, some significant inefficiencies. Now, notwithstanding that, if the benefits, i.e. that we can get a lot more energy on board. We can go much longer distance. Uh, we've got a much lower embedded uh, carbon in our, in our vehicle or in resources. Um, if those outweigh those inefficiencies, there is potentially a role for hydrogen. Uh, but we're, we're certainly sort of trying to look at that. So one of the pieces of work that we are actively trying to do is to bring a life cycle analysis approach into the bus sector to see whether we can start to open up that Pandora's box and, and start to think about using it uh, for policy in a, in a in a robust and sort of sensible way. It's, it's not easy, but that's, again, where the bus sector is. It's a great place to try and pilot these things. Over the, over the last 10, 15 years, we've, you know, the bus sector has been at the forefront of how we assess, how we develop vehicles, what we do in terms of analysis. So, um, I mean, it's a really, really interesting space. Uh, I'm not going to pick a winner there at the moment. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the downsides of hydrogen in terms of that efficiency, and therefore, whatever upsides it brings to the table have got to be pretty powerful to outweigh those downsides. So, I think there's a role for hydrogen. It's a question of how big that role is, and uh, and whether whether buses are part of that. Um, we've certainly got you know, another 40 or so going onto the road uh, in the very near future. Birmingham, Liverpool and London are all uh, are all going to be running hydrogen buses. So we'll get to know a lot more about them and how they work and what, what happens, and then we can make some better decisions. Andy, I guess the, 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 bus, the bus routes, the bus networks, and to a certain extent the long-haul trucking element, whilst they're big, heavy things to move around, they are at least metronomic in their movements, right? So... Presumably, you know, whilst they are technologically challenging because they're big, they are going to the same places at the same time every single day on a on a constant, which makes you know, so so the application of this sort of that, this technology presumably is is better suited in that in that regard in terms of a, a, a routine that doesn't barely wavers that barely changes. A couple of things, Andy. So so firstly, when you're thinking about whole life cycle costs, um, I think when it comes to hydrogen, you need to think about whole energy system. So let's come back to the, you made a comment about storage before. Hydrogen is a relatively cheap way of storing energy. So on high wind, high solar, low demand days, don't switch off wind farms and solar, make hydrogen. So I think there's a relatively whole system approach there. You know, National Grid is technology agnostic, 
But the one thing I think you'll find, is, and this relates to the road, you know, the motorway service area piece, is if you're going to use hydrogen in a bus, you need to make it where you use it, which means it's made through an electrolyzer, which means it needs a grid connection. So irrespective of picking winners, you need the right grid in the right place, whether it's a battery or hydrogen. The final point I'll make on, on buses and, and where we're likely to see them is more about geography. So one of them, uh, where hydrogen is best, best place to be used is for decarbonizing the difficult to decarbonize industrial sectors. So we have industrial clusters around the UK and those are creating hydrogen clusters to try and overcome those difficult to clean areas. So if the narrative is in and around hydrogen at scale for those difficult to serve geographies, I'm thinking Hull, I'm thinking Teesside, we've got five or six of those. You're very much more likely to see a hydrogen bus deployed in those areas by the geographic nature of there's a hydrogen focus there. It's in their narrative. So, you know, um, I think for me, it's, it's one of those externalities that's not considered. Um, you know, so I think that's where I think there'll be some interesting involvement. But in this, for me, if you, can, you need to make it where you use it and that needs a grid connection, which actually we see that as you know, power to gas. So in all of these things, the least regret things is have the right grid connection in the right place, irrespective of what's on the end of that wire, either hydrogen or electric. I think I think uh, to say, I mean Graham's absolutely right that um, uh, the, the downside is that if you use hydrogen instead of using the electricity directly, you need three or four times as much uh, grid capacity uh, to make the hydrogen, and then uh, so so that's that's the downside. Um, Sam made a really good point, and, and we've seen some really good examples of buses with smaller batteries and opportunity charging. Um, uh, you know, here in Milton Keynes, there was a, a five-year demonstration of that, and, and buses do allow that to happen. That you know where it's going to be, you know when you can charge it. One of the challenges we've got is is uh, the flexibility. So we've kind of done the pilots. We know what the technology can deliver, but now if we think about it, we we sort of want something that's going to be universal. If you're going to move those buses around the country, you can't have one that's using inductive charging and one that's using catenary uh, or one that's using different plugs and sockets or, you know, in their chargers. So actually this consolidation of the, uh, the standards uh, to be able to create that flexibility. If we were starting afresh, you'd pick one standard, you'd do the whole system. We're not, we're, 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 uh, we're starting where we are. So it's about, can we pick those right standards to then make it far more flexible in the future rather than having a bus designed for Leeds and a different bus for, for Teesside and then another different bus for London, for, for example. So that's, that's, um, that's potentially one of, the, uh, one of the pitfalls that we could face. My, my final question for today, because I'm, I'm conscious of time as well for, for, for yourselves and our listeners as well. Uh, are we in a comfortable place in terms of infrastructure for high power charging to support e-mobility? Oh, will be, will be fairly soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, as far as an answer for me, I've, I kind of jumped in there, haven't I? But um, I'm not comfortable yet, but will be in the in the fullness of time. So um, yeah, at Grissa, we obviously want to build electric forecalls everywhere. Um, we've got an aspiration to do 100 of them around the UK at least, um, as well as a hub network beneath that, um, as well as the fact we're upgrading 85% of the service station network on the electric highway as well. So um, we, you know, it, it won't be too long um, before we're in a place where I'm supremely comfortable. Um, at the moment, it's a case of just getting your head down and, and building this stuff to make sure that we deliver a, 
Um, not just us, but everybody else needs to do something similar um, in, in various ways to, to support the transition. Um, so I'm comfortable in the sense that um, I know that we as a business are doing a great deal and we can see other people following suit, which is great. Um, but we do need to deliver it. We do need to actually get on and make it happen. Um, otherwise, we're going to have a very disillusioned um, uh, transport infrastructure requirement out there that people aren't going to get the, uh, the infrastructure they want. Uh, for the vehicles they want to buy. So uh, lots of work to be done, but I'm comfortable that we're getting there. From my perspective, we've seen the UK government allocate 950 million to build underlying grid capacity to unlock the ability for, for Sam's business to, to grow in this space. The frustrating thing for me is that was announced, you know, a year ago, um, and we still don't have access to that funding. So I think from my perspective, I think, you know, government of OZEV, the, the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles, is busy thinking about the business plan and the delivery model for this stuff. Well, if the answer is more grid capacity, we kind of need to be rolling up our sleeves and getting on with it. Because if it's just money in Treasury's pot, it's not working. It's not actively being deployed. So I think the thing from my, my perspective is how collectively as an industry sector, you know, those in transport, those in charging, those in government advisory, how do we help governments actually create the delivery body, the delivery vehicle to just get on with this sort of stuff? Um, you know, there's a lot of work to do, a lot of green capital to, to flow, a lot of jobs to be created. And it's all good for the economy and the build back better, build back greener. But if you're not putting that capital to work, it's not benefiting everyone. So for me, um, finding that sense of urgency will certainly then allay that concern around um, high-powered charging not being a problem going forward. I think just, just to pick up on that, I mean, I think we've actually got all of the pieces of the jigsaw. Uh, we've got them all the right way up and, and kind of oriented in, in the right way. We've just got to put them together now. And, and I, I genuinely think, you know, and, and it's not just the bubble that we're in here today and the bubbles that the three of us sort of work in. I think everybody is motivated to do their piece towards this, Sam is, is absolutely getting on there and, and putting putting charge points in the ground uh, to deliver this. But there's some key things: the planning, joining up that energy planning with transport planning, with with you know getting a really really robust picture of the future so that we put the right wires in the ground. Uh, we've got to think about rural charging, the ones that aren't economic and won't be economic for a while. So. There's a lot of focus on delivering where people are, but where people occasionally might be, it's a bit of a hard sell for Sam to put a put a, a you know big uh, a big charger in the middle of Wales, let's say. And Wales is is very poorly serviced with charge points at the moment, as an example. Uh, we've got you know that's where government will need to step in uh, to to actually really push that agenda. Should we have a uh, an obligation to access to charging? You know, universal obligation that thou shalt be within a charger. With ten miles distance or something, um, I think there's there's more there's more things to do to bring this together. But like I say, I think all the pieces are there, and and there's no doubt that the the energy, excuse the pun, uh, within all the players exists uh, to to actually make this work. So again, I come back. I'm I'm quite optimistic that uh, we're we're in the right place, but we've really got to uh, bring it together and uh, and move forward fast now. Brilliant. Uh, thank you for your time today, Sam, Andy, and Graham. A, 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 re, a brilliant insight into how industry is leading the transition to a greener economy and the challenges it's, uh, that we're embracing during the drive to net zero. So, uh, wonderful! What well, a really great ninety minutes well spent. Thank you for your time this morning. It's been really, really appreciated. 
As a reminder, in the run-up to COP26 in November 2021, we are launching this podcast series, The Drive to Net Zero. In each instance, we'll be speaking to notable experts from across the energy industry, discussing the very latest in legislation and thought leadership, whilst we explore all areas of decarbonizing the economy and infrastructure. And we'd love you to join us on that journey. So we look forward to seeing you on our next digital adventure, Decarbonizing Fleets. Thank you.